Well, we're glad you're here on Father's Day. We're still in the Gospel of John, so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter seven. I'm sure most of you know, Bible students here, there are two great inland seas in Palestine. One is lush and a life-giving sea, the Sea of Galilee, near, near which so many of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels were performed. The other sea that's mentioned and that we know about is the Dead Sea, a stagnant, uninhabited place surrounded by deserts where Jesus was never recorded to do anything there. What's the difference between these two seas? You know the difference between the two? I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, how's that? One is alive, one's dead. It's real, real deep, right? One's alive, one's dead. The difference is the Sea of Galilee not only receives water, but it gives water. It receives the mountain waters from on high and it flows, and from it flows the, the Jordan River. But the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea only receives water. Nothing leaves it. So it's dead. The sea, the sea of Galilee receives and gives life. The other sea doesn't do any of it, and it's called the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee receives fresh water and gives fresh water so it can sustain life within its water. But the Dead Sea, no, the Dead Sea only receives so life doesn't live there. Would you like to take a drink, a big gulp from the Dead Sea? Doesn't sound appealing at all. I mean, we know water here, right? Edgewood has the best water. I've heard that multiple times. Well, Jesus is gonna talk about Water. He's going to talk about drinking here this morning in our passage in John 7. And he ends this festival, the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles that we've been talking about. And he ends it with quite a bang, a crying out actually. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the foyer we'd love to give to you. Most of you usually have one or you have your device. So click on your device, go to John 7. We're going to look at verses 37 through 52 to finish the chapter here. Follow with me as I read. John 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Well, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I wanna walk through this last section of John chapter seven. When we finish this section today, Lord willing, we're gonna be one third through the book of John in six months. I think it's pretty good. This morning, we're gonna look at three things. The first is a free offer. The free offer. The second is a divided opinion of those responding. The third is a failed attempt. There's three sections to this, this sermon, but I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm gonna spend the majority of my time this morning in the first section. There's a number of things I wanna unpack as we look at these verses. But before we do that, I'm gonna pray. So will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to come and to worship and to join together as the body of Christ. And now as we come to worship by hearing your word preached, we ask that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would speak through me, that people would hear 
you and hear your word this morning. Father, I ask that, that as we hear your word preached and taught, that it will impact our lives, that we will leave this place this morning different than when we came in. And we do all of this, God. We do all of this for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see is a free offer. You know, in our culture, we seem to be hesitant to accept free offers, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? I remember when I was in Bible college, I served on, a, on an outreach team in the local church that I was a member of there. And as a team, we decided that we were trying to reach out to the community in, in, in different new ways. And so one of the ideas is that we would do a free car wash. But we didn't want to do it on the church premises. We wanted to do it in a neutral spot. So we had talked to a, a gas station nearby that had more area and said, can we come do a free car wash? And they're like, sure. So we get there, have the signs. The signs clearly say free car wash. And people come up and we wash their car. Our desire was to, to build a relationship with people, tell them, who we are, where we're from. And, and you can probably guess what happened at the very end when the car is washed, what do people want to do? They wanted to pay you every time without fail. They couldn't believe that it was free. Actually, they wouldn't believe that it was free. And it was, it was a struggle. We realized this probably wasn't the best idea in some ways because people were so skeptical that this, how could it be free? They were compelled. Some people were angry, actually. You need to take this money. They'd drop it out their window and drive away. It wasn't a good outreach in that way. They're, they're all waiting for the other shoe, like, well, I see. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I'll sign up, and then I'm going to get my email box full of spam mail for the next month. They're waiting for that. So I ask, are you that way when you hear that free offer? You know, you've lived long enough on earth to know that nothing is free. There's always a catch. You're just cynical enough to believe that why would people give something away for free, especially when it's costly? Well, here's Jesus in John 7, and he's offering something for free. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Here's Jesus on the last day of the feast, a week-long feast, the great day as John calls it, and, he, and he la Jesus waits to that last day, most likely because there's a lot of people there. There's the crowds. It's the, the end of this festival. It's very important. It had significance. And so Jesus wants to capitalize on the crowd that's there so they can hear this message. D.A. Carson, one commentator, explains this last day and the significance of the festival. He says, on the seventh day of the feast, a golden flag on a container of water was filled from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate in the south side of the inner court, there was three blasts from a trumpet that connected with joyful occasions. And while the pilgrims, the people there watched, the priest processed around the altar with this container of water and, and the choir would sing out of the, the psalms. And then the water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice along with a daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. Moreover, these ceremonies of the Feast of the Tabernacles were related to, in their Jewish thought, both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. And so the pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers to this messianic age which would stem back from the sacred rock which would flow over the whole earth. So it had very strong significance at the end of this festival that they would have this ceremony. Jesus knows this. He knows all of this. And he's going to utilize this feast to again point to them. Every, every Jew knew this. And I, and I gotta think again, Jesus' boldness in this. He's come to a city that was against him. Remember this chapter starts and he's hesitant not because of fear, but because of the timing, but they're out to kill him. They want Jesus gone. And yet here he is in verse 37, rising in the midst of the people, and with passion in his soul, he cries out to the people. Charles Spurgeon writes about this. He says, whereas his custom was to sit and teach the people who gathered in a ring around him on this closing day, he sought a prominent place. And there he stood before them all. Behold, he stands and pleads. 
Spurgeon says, I think I see the master's face beaming with holy affection, his eyes streaming with tears as he pleads for them. And Jesus stands in their midst with a loud voice, crying out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He offers himself. And their minds would, would, would go back to Isaiah 51, 55.1, I'm sure, where Isaiah writes, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's here, it's free. And Jesus' pronouncement is clear in this passage. He is the fulfillment of all the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. They were always looking forward to the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm here. It is me. If Isaiah could invite the thirsty to drink from the waters, Jesus announces that he is the one who could provide the waters. And who is the offer for in this verse? Verse 37, who is it? It says, if anyone. It's for everyone. It's open to all but there's one condition that Jesus brings. There's one condition. The invitation is, is universal, but there's one condition. There's no, there's no ethic or social or intellectual qualifications to have the water that Jesus is offering. The offer is given to everyone. And that's the same for you here this morning. The offer is to everyone sitting here. If you're breathing here today, this offer is for you. It's a personal offer from Jesus to come and to drink but there's one condition that he has here. You have to be thirsty. Francis Schaeffer, one of our great apologists, talks about this need for thirst. And I've shared this a few weeks ago. ago. He's, he was asked once, he said, Why, what would you do if you met a man on the train and you only had one hour to share the gospel with him? What would you do? And he says, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he's morally dead, that he has no hope in and of himself, and that I would spend the next 10 to 15 minutes giving him the gospel. Folks, the hardest work is not getting men saved, but getting them lost. So let me tell you another way in context of this passage. The hardest thing is not to satisfy their thirst, but to make them feel thirsty for God. All people in this world thirst. Everyone thirsts, but not all thirst for God. We were, we were made as humans to long for things, to thirst for something more than just food and drink. And we're, we're afflicted with this chronic restlessness we're created to long for something much bigger than ourselves. As humans, everything in our life will eventually get boring. You know, we're, we're now approaching this in our family. We get in the car and we're there for 30 seconds and my four-year-old says, Dad, I'm bored. Oh. I just want to say, just hold on. Just live on earth a little longer. You can get more bored. Fad after fad, technology after technology, fashion after fashion, the movie comes, the music comes, we will get bored. It comes into our lives and it leaves and we're still thirsty. And what the world needs to hear is that we are, they're afflicted, but they're also blessed with a continual restlessness and unquenchable thirst that will never go away until they see their need for Jesus Christ. The world needs to hear. They need to understand that they were made for God. They were made for God. You were made for God. I know this world is, is trying to dispel and push that truth out. But the scripture is screaming to us that we were made for God. We're not made for this world. The world says you were made for a spouse. The world says you are made for a job or a home or recreation and fun. That's what the world says. But the Bible says that you're made for God. And the satisfaction of our souls only comes when we submit ourselves to God. Sin is fundamentally thirsting for things other than God. 
And we all thirst, everyone thirsts. You thirst, your neighbors thirst, your boss thirsts, your coworkers thirst. They desire to be satisfied, really satisfied, fully satisfied, completely satisfied. Your kids are thirsty. And I don't mean like, Dad, I need some apple juice thirsty. I mean, they're longing for something that they know they need and can't find. Longing for something outside of this world. Parents, listen, your kids are thirsty. Are you going to let the world try to quench their thirst? Or are you going to point them to the one who can really quench their thirst? Who can satisfy them? Parents, are we preaching? Are we sharing with our kids and telling them that they were made for God? You know, let that sink deep within your heart and your mind. Your kids were not created for you. Now, you had a part in making them, but they weren't created for you. They were made for God. You don't own them. You don't get to keep them forever. They are loaned to you, entrusted to you. But ultimately, your kids belong to God. They were made for him. How are we doing? And not just parents that have young kids, parents that have older kids, people that don't have any kids. There's kids around here, by the way. You can help. Please help us. We can have influence in others, just even outside of our own family. But how are we doing? How, how are we doing training and teaching and encouraging I'll ask parents, have you this week pointed your kids to the one who can satisfy their thirst? So if you're sitting here feeling sorry for yourself, realizing that you're a failure as a parent and all the areas you need to do better, you try harder, mistakes you make, stop it. Okay? If you could parent perfectly, your kids wouldn't need a savior. So realize it, confess your shortcomings, repent of your sins, and look to be obedient to God from here. And when you screw up, because you will, do it again. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the gospel. Understanding that we can repent and be back in right fellowship with God. You know, this verse, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink, is, is as much for, for us as parents as it is for our kids. And we, we change the hearts of our kids. We change the hearts of those that we are, are around by modeling the gospel, by living it out in our lives, creating an, an environment, centering our homes around the gospel. And the gospel, rightly understood and rightly modeled in our lives, makes Christianity attractive. You know, you want to know the step of effective parenting? Talk about the gospel. Effective parents make the gospel so attractive that the world can't even get close. And the world is going to try. They want to steal away the hearts of our kids. But if we display the gospel, if we talk about it, when we sin we confess it, we repent of it, we turn from it. We, we need to, and not only in our lives as parents, but in our lives as believers in this world, we need to model repentance. The world needs to see that. The world needs to understand that. Your kids, when are they going to learn repentance? They don't learn it from us. We need to show them. We need to model it for them. And other things of life, when we're fearful, when things are uneasy, we lose our job or lose other things and we're unsure, we're modeling for our kids, for our families, for our coworkers, for our neighbors, what Christians do. We show them by our actions and reactions. And we need to trust Christ, remind ourselves. Let me tell you, you remind yourself over and over and over. You run to the scriptures. You let people know your hope is not in that job. My hope's in God. When you see the world in all its brokenness, don't get agitated. Remember the one who's in control. Entrust yourself to him 
Entrust your family to him. Talk about that. You know, remember the gospel is what saves, not political systems, not presidents, the gospel. God, what he does through the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you're not trusting Christ, then you're still thirsty and you've not been quenched. And I need to be honest with you this morning, as I am every week, I hope. You have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. You will continue to thirst and you will continue to search for what is missing. You know, thirst is an absence of the necessary. It's painful, it's emptiness. Thirst is a, a conscious need of, of a deep emptiness of the soul. And there's only one satisfaction. And Jesus calls out to us this morning and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So this raises a, an important question. How does a, a thirsty soul receive this drink that Jesus freely offers? Is there some kind of good deeds that we need to do, the, the right way to act? Can a, a check be written out to the church? Or is there a ritual that needs to be observed? And the answer is no, not at all. Jesus puts it simply, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We, we come to Jesus not with our feet, but we come to him with faith. Coming to Jesus means believing his claims to be the only savior of the world. It means receiving him as our savior and our Lord and trusting him with our lives. It means bringing our sins to the cross and recognizing and realizing that he died. He shed his blood to pay for our sins, to cover it all. But faith is not just receiving, it's, it's yielding to Jesus. And this truth is beautifully displayed in C.S. Lewis' book, The Silver Chair. Then he read the series of Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair. The books, kids, you didn't know you are going to get a story today, right? People are excited about that. I, I love C.S. Lewis' writing. And, and in this book, The Silver Chair, the heroine is Jill, and she sees a lion. You guys know who the lion is, right? I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to read the book. She sees the lion, and she flees deep into the forest. And in the midst of it, she becomes worn out, and she becomes thirsty. And so much so, she's so thirsty that she thinks she's going to die. We experience this on a daily basis in our house. I'm thirsty. I'm going to die. That's kind of how I view it. So here's what Lewis writes. He says, the birds had ceased singing and there was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Joe got up and looked around very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might be easily quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was very bad now and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment and sooner than she expected, and she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open. And she had very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt like she would not mind being eaten by the lion. If only she could be sure she'd get a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you're thirsty... Come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered, his, answered this only by a look and a very low growl. 
The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls? She asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this if it were boasting, nor if if it was sorry, nor if it was angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream said the lion. Lewis makes an extremely important point here. Jesus invites you to come, but only on his terms. And there is only one source of water. It's his water. You come to Christ yielding yourself to him, not the other way around. When we come to Jesus, we come to him recognizing that he is Lord. When we come to Jesus, we we need to know that he intends to revolutionize your life. And I want you to know when you come to Jesus, he has plans that are far beyond your understanding, that are perfect and good for you. When Jill in the story finally kneels down and drinks from the lion's water, she found that it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. She says, you didn't need to drink much of it for it quenched your thirst at once. This is the same with Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, our Lion of Judah. You will be satisfied in Jesus. And what does Jesus promise for those that drink from the fountain of life? The answers are in 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For yet as the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When we drink deep of Jesus, he says we will be satisfied. But not just that, we will be satisfied. He is promising us that not only will our cup be full, but that it will be overflowing to other people. When we come to Jesus, we become not just a container, but a spring. Jesus promises us this morning that if we drink him into our hearts, he will overflow with rivers of living water. As Christians, we get the Holy Spirit to come live within us. One commentator, Richard Phillips, writes, the Holy Spirit is not a sip of medicine that we just drink once, but a river of living water that Christ plants within us, a bestower of blessings that have no end. And this is true for the believer's life. When you've tasted and know that the Lord is good, you want others to see it. You want others to experience it. You want others to get in on this. You need to have this. You know, as as a Christian, our lives are are not meant to live as a cul-de-sac, meaning we receive and then we just keep. We, We hoard it to ourselves. That's not what the gospel's for. We don't live as a cul-de-sac. We should live as a conduit. It comes through us. We understand it and we want others to understand it. And when Christ comes into your life, when you drink deep of him and are satisfied, he doesn't leave a puddle. He makes a spring. And from the spring flows a river. And when you're serving Christ and serving others, the the flowing rivers living inside of you reaches out to other people and you experience joy as Christians. Lasting joy, real lasting joy. This is why I love ministry. This is why I love getting up every morning what God allows me to do. I feel like I'm stealing from the church. You know, you pay me to, I'm just blown away every morning. I get to do this. I get, I love meeting people. I love sitting down and talking about what God's doing in their life, to talk about scripture, to teach, to serve people. I love doing that. And God uses that to bring joy in my life. 
Martin Luther, almost 500 years ago, commenting about this passage, he says, he that cometh to me shall be so furnished with the Holy Ghost that he shall not only be quickened and refreshed himself and delivered from thirst, but he shall also be a strong stone vessel from which the Holy Ghost and all his gifts shall overflow to others, refreshing and comforting and strengthening them, even as he was refreshed by me. That is the Christian life. It doesn't just stop with us. So you have this free offer to come and drink this morning. What will you do? You have a choice this morning. Will you drink deeply of Jesus or will you walk away? Hell is full of people who could have been satisfied with Jesus. Instead, they sought to find their satisfaction in other things. So first, we have the free offer. Second, I want you to see the divided opinion, the response from the people. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. He begins by saying there's some of those that believe Jesus is just a prophet. That means they're, they're willing to accept a portion of what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is claiming, but not all of it. They don't want all of what Jesus is saying. And the prophet is a reference back to Deuteronomy 18.15. I mentioned that a few times. And this person that was to come to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so in other words, this prophet was, was there to, to point people to the answer the man's issues, the man's problems, but this person was not the answer. And so by giving Jesus this title, people were saying that they thought he was a good man, that even a, a maybe a, a needed man, but he was not the most important man. There are many that act this way towards Jesus today. They come to Jesus for inspiring thoughts, good words, encouraging teaching. But when Jesus says to repent, to turn from your sin and to follow me, they don't want anything to do with that kind of Jesus. There are some that come to church because they feel it's good for them. Kind of like eating vegetables. It's good for me. I'll drink water because it's good for me. Some approach Jesus that way. Some people approach this way with their kids. It's without fail. Every Awana year, I'll meet a parent and they say, I saw you had Awana and I went as a kid and it was good for me. So I want my kids to come because I think it's good for them. And they go home and have Brussels sprouts because that's good for them too, I'm sure. It's that mentality. I, it was, you know, I had a little bit of God. I wanted to learn how to spell Jesus and memorize John 3.16 and they go for a couple years and they're good. It's good for them. People approach God this way. And in the life of the parent, they don't, they don't come. They're not involved. They don't care. Their kid needs to go through it, but for them, it's not. That's how some approach Jesus. The second group here in verse 41, these, these people were willing to acknowledge that he actually was all that he claimed to be. They at least acknowledge intellectually. They say he's the Christ. It's an, it's an agreement intellectually that he says this. And this may be the case for you this morning. Intellectually, you understand this. You've heard the gospel for a long time. Maybe you grew up in church. You understand the Bible pretty well. You memorize verses as a child. You believe that the Bible is God's word. You know that Jesus is the son of God. You believe it. You do not question the reliability of, of the crucifixion or even the meaning of Christ's death for you. You can even discern when you hear different gospels and, and think, well, that's not right what I was taught. Pastor Jeff said something different. You, all, you get all this, and yet you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never determined to follow Jesus. You've heard it all, but no decision was made. You may think that's a little far-fetched. Is that possible? 
When I was a sophomore in Bible college, I was finishing a day of classes midweek, I believe, and it got back to my dorm room and hearing that a friend of mine, Daniel, had accepted Christ earlier that day. A classmate of mine. Bible college classmate of mine. He was the vice president's son. Before his dad was there, his dad was a pastor. He was a graduate of the Christian high school. In fact, he was a valedictorian. Preached multiple times. His home, great home. I know his mom and dad talked about the gospel a whole lot. His whole life, he knew and understand, he heard it. But on that day, on that chapel day, when the chapel speaker had the gall to give the gospel to Bible college students, I mean, the gall of this guy, to preach the gospel in a Bible college, he preached it. And he challenged Bible college students to respond, and he realized he never had. He knew it all, but he never responded. He's a missionary now in Bali with his two kids, preaching the gospel, imploring those to follow Jesus. But I remember that day distinctly. There are some in this passage that, yeah, he's the Christ. I see it, I hear it. Nothing different in life. A mental acknowledgement. Are you here today with all the head knowledge of Jesus Christ, but have never repented, never decided to follow him, to submit your life to him? What will you do with Jesus? You know, the third group of people here, these are the people that reject Christ. And they do it by the evidence that is unfounded, actually. Their objection was unfounded. Their friends said in verse 41, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and, and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They, they thought that Jesus had not satisfied what the prophecy has said, the Old Testament about the Messiah, and so they dismissed Jesus. They had no further use of Jesus. They thought he was just a man, that he's not the Messiah. Because they knew, they understood what the prophecy said, that, that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, but to them, Jesus was from Galilee. They did not ask the question. They did not look for the answers. Their reasoning was misinformed. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. He was just residing in Galilee at this time. But they thought he was from there. They didn't even ask the question, where were you born? What a horrible mistake to make. And the fourth group, the last one, verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. There's no way to understand this group. This is a lynch mob. Either out of fear or out of anger, they want Jesus down. They want to take him out. They're going to turn him in. But God works in a situation, and John tells us that their attempt to, to change God's plan wasn't going to be successful. And that leads to the third point this morning, the failed attempt. The failed attempt by the chief priests and the Pharisees to capture Jesus. Listen as I read verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone, in, gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he, is, what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You know, the spiritual leaders at this point diagnosed the situation and their, their response Everyone else is wrong. We're right. And first they say that the officers were deceived. You know, the officers come back and say, there's no one like Jesus. The impression they have of Jesus is much different than the Pharisees. But their response is, you're just deceived. 
Second, the crowds, by their estimation, are, are cursed. That's what they're saying about the crowds. They're cursed. It says in verse 49, but this crowd does not know the law is a curse. They say that the crowd is confused because they don't know the law. And because they don't know the law, they're cursed by God. This is astonishing that these Pharisees come to this conclusion. They completely write off the crowd as missing the law and then put themselves in a positive light by saying that they, they understand everything perfectly. They understand the law correctly. The third thing we see here is that they think Nicodemus is blinded by his bias towards Jesus and the Galileans. If you remember in John 3, Nicodemus himself, he came to Jesus to ask questions. And Jesus responded that he needed to be born again. And now he gives caution to the leaders in verse 51. He says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Even the despised Romans did not condemn people without a hearing. They know this. But his fellow members of the Sanhedrin, their minds are already closed to Jesus. They're in no mood to be fair at this point. Nicodemus is just another annoyance. So instead of being open to Nicodemus's concern about getting all the facts, they just want Jesus gone. You know, it's, it's interesting to me as I see this, I think the response to Nicodemus is, is kind of this mentality of like, well, he's one of you. Well, of course you want Jesus to get a fair hearing. He's one of the Galileans. He's on your team. He's on your clan. And they just dismiss it. And they think, this is their, their end result, they think the officers are, are blinded by deception, that the crowds are blinded by a curse. And, and Nicodemus, well, he's blinded by bias. These leaders don't understand. They've not asked the questions of Jesus. They've not come looking for answers. They didn't even ask who Jesus was or where he came from or why he was here at all. You know, as you read through the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you come more and more of the prophecies that Jesus fulfills in his time on earth. A few weeks ago, we were on vacation, and so we, we visited uh, Ryan Woods Church, Redemption, and Luke Barnes, before he began the worship service, started reading a quote about the odds of all the prophecies being fulfilled. And I found it very fascinating. So I was doing some more reading on that. Have you ever thought about the odds of Jesus coming to earth and fulfilling all the prophecies? Have you ever thought about that? Let me read just a few of them here. Did you know that the Old Testament prophet Micah, writing in 700 BC, out of, out of the hundreds and hundreds of cities and the scores and scores of nations in existence all over the world, even in those days, designated Bethlehem of Judea as the birthplace of the Messiah? And at the same time, Isaiah in, in chapter 7 said that the Christ would be born a virgin. Now, how about the prophecy made in 1012 BC, specified that the Messiah's hands and feet would eventually be pierced, a clear reference to, to death by crucifixion. And this happened, this was prophesied 800 years before Rome even instituted crucifixion. It wasn't even invented yet. And that was the prophecy. You know, a number of years ago, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. And the book was based on the science of probability and vouched by the American Scientific Affiliation. And it set out the odds of any one man in all of history to fulfill even just eight, just eight of the 60 major prophecies given about Jesus Christ. And there's ramifications of that, over 270 ramifications of all the, the 60. So there's a bunch. There's a well over 30 of the prophecies, or th excuse me, 300. And so this is what he says. The, the probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight of such prophecies would be one and tenth to the 17th power. Not one in 10, but one in 10 with 17 zeros. That Jesus would just fulfill eight of the well over 300 prophecies. And he fulfilled them all. Every single one of them. Perfectly. 
This is Jesus. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's our savior. There's no one like him. So what will you do with him? What is your answer to him? The Pharisees, they're through with Jesus. They're done. They've made up their mind. He's an annoyance to them. What is Jesus to you? What is your response to him? We've covered a number of things here in this passage this morning. I was very challenged in my study this week in the first couple of verses of this passage, verse 37 and 38. And, and I want to challenge you this morning. It's part of my job. I know a number of you are, are Christians here this morning. And, and I realize that this world can be daunting and all that we're involved in, and we get our schedules filled up very quickly in the week. But I want you to do something this week. I want everyone to do something this week. I want you to wake up every day. That's the first thing. That's a good thing to do. And I want the first words to come out of your mouth is, God, I was made for you. Help me to live for you today. Nothing, you know, not rocket science here, okay? You know, simple. But it's that acknowledgement. Reminding yourself and then if you have other people in your house that live with you, remind them just in the morning. Remember, God, God made you for himself. Talk about it. Talk about it with your spouse. Talk about it with your kids. Talk about it with your neighbors, people you come in contact with. Talk about it. If you have an unsaved friend you're talking to, start the conversation this week with that. Did you know that I was made for God? That will get the conversation going. Talk about what that means. Come back to John chapter seven. Talk about the offer that Jesus gives here. Read it together. Remember and remind yourselves that you, you're, not, you're not made for yourself. You're not made for this world. You're made for him. And for those of you this morning that are here that do not know Jesus Christ, you are not living for him. This invitation from Jesus is extended to you. And the condition that he has is that if you thirst for him, you can drink deeply. And the problem is that so few in this world thirst for Jesus. They do not thirst for the life that Jesus gives. A lot of people think that they will miss out on life if they come to Jesus. They think all of the fun will end now when the opposite is true. I had the privilege yesterday to preach at a funeral of a dear lady that, that knew Jesus. You know, my friend Josh, who passed away, although it's hard, I say they have life. Yes, they're gone, but I know where they're at. They have life now. They don't thirst for Jesus anymore. You know why? Because they get to stare at him. And there's so many in this world that are thirsting for things outside of Jesus and they're filled with the dead waters of this world. They're drinking deeply of the dead sea. They're filling their lives with entertainment, with passions, with money, with pleasures in this world, and they continue to thirst. It never goes away, this nagging thirst. Do you thirst for more than this world offers? Jesus is standing, pleading this morning through the preaching of his word. And as we see in the passage a mass of people refuse Jesus. They ignore Jesus. But what about you? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your ministry here on earth. That all you, you did for us. God, I thank you that even though you know us, you know us better than anyone. And you see the sin in our lives. You see the wickedness there. And yet you came and you died for us and then you offer us yourself. And we recognize that we feel so unworthy. And we, we have the thirst. We have the, the need that we deep down in our souls knowing that we need so much more than this world has to offer. And God, it's found only in you, only through Jesus Christ. I pray for those that are seated this morning that maybe some that are here that have heard it all, that have been a part of church for years, that intellectually they know and understand it all, but they've never, never decided, never committed to follow Jesus. Maybe out of fear for what they'll lose, fear of what they have to give up. God, I ask that you would make it clear to them of how much they gain by laying aside this world. Help us, Father, as, as Christians here this morning that, that maybe have forgotten this, that have gotten consumed with things in life, maybe not, not sin at all, but just with busyness. I pray that you will help us to remember again this offer. to rejoice that, it, that you're still there you haven't turned away from us. Help us to live for you. Help us, God, as we, as we leave this place to share the hope that we have with the promise that we have that, that out of our heart flows living water, that you give us the words to say, the scriptures to read, to quote, that people would see a change in us that we are following after you. Help us this week, God. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.